This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to the Equity Mates Summer Series of 2020, brought to you by Superhero. Over 12 episodes, we're diving into some of Australia's largest and most well-known companies, as selected by you, the Equity Mates community. We'll be unpacking the company, its industry, the outlooks, key financials, and in some instances, we'll also be taking the tough questions straight to the CEO. And in this episode, we are lucky enough to be joined by a co-founder and executive director uh, of one of them. But before we do, as as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm loving this summer series so far. I'm going to make the big call that it's our best one yet. Yes. <laughs> and I'm particularly excited for this interview because there's been a lot of... Um, highly discussed stocks, shall yes. we say, in the equity mates community. Uh, you know, the buy now, pay later sector yep. uh, stocks have been um, very popular in the community. But I'm going to say this company may have been the most discussed. And well, at least around its IPO, it was. Uh, there was a lot of interest in this one. So I'm very excited to uh, talk to the co-founder of this company. Yes. Well, without further ado, it is our absolute pleasure to welcome Kate Morris to the show uh, from Adore Beauty. Kate, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So Kate is the founder of uh, Australia's longest running online beauty store, Adore Beauty, uh, co-founding Adore in 2000 as a 21-year-old while studying at Monash. Uh, Kate has grown and scaled the company to over $120 million in sales and most recently an IPO in uh, the back end of 2020, which we have been following closely as has a lot of our community. So Kate, uh, again, welcome and we're very much looking forward to unpacking your journey, a bit about uh, Adore and also so sort of the future plans. So um, welcome. Great. Let's get into it. So Kate, um, Adore is a true entrepreneurial uh, success story, I guess. And we're really excited to ask you about that and, and what that journey was like for you. But before we do, we do like to start these interviews uh, by just asking uh, company leaders how they see their own companies. So uh, to kick us off today, we'd love to hear you describe uh, your company in your own words. So what is Adore? Sure, sure. Um, so Adore Beauty is Australia's largest and first uh, online pure play beauty retailer. And we think about ourselves as being um, not just a retailer, but a platform that brings together 
over 250 brands, hundreds of thousands of consumers together. Um, but then, uh, you know, links that with with education and entertainment and presents um, beauty in a in a real and authentic and democratic way. So really what we want, our goal is to help our customers feel confident and fabulous when they engage with the beauty category. Yeah, nice. So it hasn't been uh, a an overnight sort of IPO, you know, you started two years ago. This has been something that you've been building for almost two decades now. So we'd love to hear about the journey of founding Adore and perhaps like any particular tough moments that you faced during your entrepreneurial journey as we sort of find that's where some of the key lessons are for, um, you know, members in the community. Yes, no, we are the we are the twenty twenty year overnight success. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, the business was started. Like it's it's actually the the classic or the maybe the cliched garage startup story. Um, so yes, nearly well a bit more than twenty years ago actually, and it came about. I I moved to Melbourne for uni from Tasmania and um, had got myself a part time job working on the beauty counters in department stores and which to me was the funnest job ever. I, I, I loved it. I thought it was great, but um, it was very clear to me, I think, once I'd, I'd been doing this for a little while that um, so many women who were approaching the beauty counters in department stores really hated the whole experience and it was very intimidating and there was like a lot of sales pressure, um, which I knew because I was on sales targets that I that I had to hit myself and and so many so many people were finding this experience of having to having to go into a department store just really you know, just intimidating and unpleasant and it was making them, you know, they really didn't feel confident or great after having that experience. And to me, that didn't make any sense because the whole point of the beauty category is to make you feel like your most confident and fabulous version of yourself. And so, and to me, to me that, that, you know, that whole channel was a bit broken. And when I started to see, this is, I mean, you know, I'm thinking 1999 here, and we started to see online shopping, you know, become a bit more of a thing, or we could see it happening in the US, not happening very much in Australia. And I thought someone really needs to do this for beauty because I think there is a lot of people who would who would prefer to shop this way and being able to take their time and have access to all the information and um, and there just wasn't anything. And, um, and so I <laughs> decided that I was going to start the first one having no business experience at all and no money and no connections or anything. And uh, yes, ended up pitching my boyfriend's dad who ran a small motel near Melbourne airport. He was the only business person I knew. And uh, you know, pitched him this this business plan, and of course, you know, having having taken it to the banks already and getting pretty much laughed out of town, as you can imagine. And, and he said, "Yes, all right, you know, I'll I'll lend you the money." And uh, had to go and try and get a website built because, of course, it wasn't you know, you couldn't just get like Shopify or whatever something ready to go. Um, if you're thinking back. 20 years ago and and then set about the process of trying to convince the entire Australian beauty industry and all the women in Australia that shopping online for beauty products was going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's been no small feat and I imagine uh, your, uh, your boyfriend's parent or your boyfriend's dad at the time uh, would be very happy with his investment with a door now worth uh, a little bit over half a billion dollars. So he's well, um, it was actually a 
alone, and so probably he should have gone for equity. Oh, no, no. Spewing for him. <laughs> but yes, yes you... it was it was certainly speculative at the time. Yeah, asking your boyfriend's parents for uh, a loan as a twenty-one-year-old uni student—that's uh, a big step to take. Can you can you tell us what that conversation was like? Um, well, he was always just—he was just such a, a lovely and supportive man, and he's—he's he's no longer with us, unfortunately, because I think he would have just—I mean—he just would have absolutely loved to see um, to see this and to see what the business has become in the last few years. But it was more—you know—he said, "Okay, right. Well, you need to go and write write a business plan." And um, of course, I had to go and you know borrow like one of those for dummies books from the library in terms of how to write a business plan. And so I went away and you know we did that exercise with my boyfriend as well. He's my co-founder still. And, um, and we, we went and pitched it to him and he says, okay, well, I think this will be a really good experience for you both. And I think he was fully prepared to, to lose the dough and they weren't, you know, particularly well off, but I think what a tremendous thing to give someone permission to try and possibly fail um, but, you know, I mean, I, I just think that's that's one of the greatest you know, gifts that we were ever given was was that permission to have a go at it. So, Kate, you started uh, two th- in, what, 2000, 99, 2000 and, and chose to go purely online mm-hmm. with the e-commerce approach, which is re- it, it's pretty fascinating given, I guess, back then the penetration of online shopping would have been incredibly low um, relative low. To, t- to today. What has the last sort of 20 years taught you about the, the broader shift in consumer shopping preferences um, in retail. Alec and I both had uh, have come from a retail background and have certainly seen how COVID has changed the retail landscape. But what about sort of the last ten years or so? What what have been some of the big changes you've you've noticed? Well, I think really the fundamental shift that we've seen, um, and you know, e-commerce is kind of. It's only the technology that's enabled that, but, but, but really the big shift is a shift towards customer centricity. So if you think about the old department store model, um, particularly for beauty, well, the customer has to, you know, has has to go in there themselves at a time when is maybe not convenient for them and approach. Um, any one of the sort of separated counters and there's so many barriers put in place for them to be able to access information you know the everything is very much around um, you know the brands and the retailer controlling that experience and the customer is treated like like a student or like a patient and they have to go up to the counter you know and receive very limited pieces of information and be told what to buy or have to ask permission to be able to buy what they want to um, and that's just not customer centric at all and so really what e-commerce has done I mean yes it's there's the whole you know extra convenience factor but really what it is is about kind of democratising that access to information um, and enabling customers to be the one controlling the experience and controlling how much interaction they have. And so that's, that's I think, the really fundamental and disruptive difference around what we've done. Um, but then sort of more broadly than that, the change that I've seen over the last 20 years is, um, you know, the way that customers are thinking about e-commerce 
And if you think about it sort of in the early days in Australia, um, people who were adopting e-commerce were, they were kind of only shopping online if it was cheaper to do that. And for us as a premium beauty retailer, we weren't, we weren't really competing on price. And so that, that, you know, sort of didn't really help us very much. And then, um, and then it sort of shifted to being more about convenience. Um, and we'd been working on our customer experience for a very long time and, you know, getting amazing results. And so that sort of worked well. But the thing that we're seeing now is the customer shifting towards a more of a discovery mindset. And so we see in the beauty industry, it's not just all around repurchasing the products that you've tried before, we're finding very much now that customers are willing to discover a product entirely online and buy something online that they've never that they've never bought before. And for us, that's where things have gotten really fun. And we've been able to develop a lot of different, you know, different ways of connecting with our customers and, um, you know, and of, help, of creating content to help them with that discovery piece. Uh, I mean, our podcast, you know, we have our, our own podcast, Beauty IQ Uncensored, which is um, Australia's number one fashion and beauty podcast. Um, we have a YouTube channel that we launched earlier this year from lockdown, actually, which presented additional logistical channel challenges, I'm sure you can imagine, but, um, you know, and that's, that's had millions of views already, but, but ways that we can actually help customers navigate to and discover new products to solve um, their concerns that they've never tried before. That's, that's where things have gotten really powerful for us. Yeah. It's interesting. I think one of the um, parts of the business that I was interested to see is the focus that you have on the content side and the um you know it's very rare i can't really think of another online business that does do the amount of content that you do um where do you see that side of the business sort of going is it is the idea to just grow into a not not necessarily a media arm but like where where does where do you see that going Look, we do kind of think ourselves, think of ourselves in a way as as being kind of a combination of retail and media. Because uh, if you think about the way the beauty industry used to work, it was all very much about you know the big brands would advertise in glossy magazines, and hopefully that would at some point lead the customer into a store to go and look at a product. And I guess we're kind of replacing both parts of that loop, the discovery part, and then also actually the fulfillment of the purchase. And then obviously the, you know, the the, sort of the post-sale service as well. So I guess, yes, the way that we think about it is, is very much having that integrated model. And the really key point in all of that is to continue to maintain the customer centricity and the authenticity as our focus, uh, because I think the, the problem with the way that, you know, sort of media as a standalone business model works is that, you know, you, you kind of paying for eyeballs and that's, that's not necessarily leading to the best outcome for the customer. And that's why we don't, you know, sell advertising or anything like that, because actually, the really important thing is that we create content that's useful for the customer and that we can continue to do that and continue to actually maintain kind of a brand agnostic voice. So, Kate, we've touched on a couple of elements um, for, uh, that have contributed to Adore's success, the customer centricity, uh, the authenticity, and then the media arm as well. I just want to introduce some numbers for our audience to get some context. So, in, in terms of sales, in 2010, Adore did $2 million in sales. By 2016, that was $16 million. 
by 2019 it was 70 million and then this year 2020 uh, 120 million uh, which is a pretty phenomenal growth curve um, yeah. as, aside from those factors that we've already touched on is there anything else that you sort of attribute that growth curve to so <laughs> um, it's really funny, actually, when you talk about the growth curve. If you look at the first half of the growth curve, growth curve, it's it's just really, really flat for a long time. <laughs> um, it's the weirdest looking hockey stick you ever saw. Um, <clears throat> look, I think I think what it comes down to is having a commitment to customer experience in terms of doing all of the little things right over and over and over for a very long period of time. Because what you're seeing there is us, you know, acquiring customers and then them sticking to the platform. Um, and so if you if you look at the, the patterns of behaviour for our customer cohorts, once they're retained from the first year to the second year, they basically, they don't go anywhere. Um, they continue to stay around and then every year, they purchase more frequently and they spend more each time they purchase. And so what we're kind of doing is building up these layers of customers who, you know, who rely on us, um, you know, for information and a fantastic customer experience every single time. But, you know, to, to be able to maintain it, like the really hard thing is to continue to do it year after year after year after year and to continue to scale it as well. If you're thinking about, okay, well, we're still, I mean, we've still got an MPS of, you know, nearly 80 and to do that when you're, you know, when you're increasing your volume of orders and volume of customers you're serving every, serving every year, it's actually really quite hard. Um, but that that's kind of what we've done is we've continued to build up these really loyal and sticky um, customer cohorts that have continued to come back to us. And then obviously now it's, I mean, you know, and I guess COVID was sort of an accelerant for that in terms of lots of people suddenly discovering e-commerce all at once and and that sort of slow channel shift from bricks and mortar through to online has been happening for a long time um, and you see i mean here in australia i think we're still only at about 12 percent of, of retail being online if you look at china in the beauty category it's like pushing nearly 50 percent adoption and so it's it's just kind of one of those those channel shift things but you know if you want to hold on to those customers you have to prioritize the customer experience over and over and over mm. more and more retailers are obviously moving online or adopting that sort of hybrid bricks and clicks model um so i guess the question would be how will a door continue to really compete and differentiate yourself from increasing competition. Um, I imagine it is going to be around the remaining customer centric, but what is it about a door that, um, you know, makes your view on being customer centric better than the others that sort of have that similar idea? Yeah, sure. Um, and I mean, look, the beauty category has always been a super competitive one. And if you think about us, you know, <laughs> trying to, to lob in there as a, as a garage startup with no funding and saying, right, I'm going to take it up to Meyer and David Jones, who are just these, you know, giant um, behemoths. I mean, we had no right. We had no right to succeed, honestly. But I think, you know, I think we've been very good at continuing to innovate with the customer in mind, continuing to be agile. And the business model that we've built 
kind of combines these three main elements. So obviously you have you have the product selection and we have a unique product selection that spans across prestige brands, across professional brands that are usually only found in like skin clinics or hair salons, niche and hard to find brands, some mash stage brands as well. So our product selection is unique. We have an incredible customer experience that people kind of gloss over and go, oh, yeah, but you know, anybody can anybody can do that. But you know, the truth is that they is that they don't. And, um, you know, I think that's what our customers discover is that, yes, if you've tried shopping with any of our competitors and, and then shop with the door, like the experience is just not comparable in terms of how fast you get your order and, uh, you know, really highly trained and brand agnostic people on live chat to help you out and free samples and all of those sorts of things. Um, and then also you combine those things, so the brand, you know, the product selection, the customer experience, and then with our data and content capabilities, and it, cre- you know, it has this, this kind of flywheel effect that really continues to, to, to just reinforce the success of the model and, um, you know, the, the, that sort of personalised and rich content where we're able to help our customers continually discover the products that are going to make them feel amazing and then give them that instant gratification of getting your order the very next day, um, it is quite powerful. Mm. So, Kate, before we jump into, uh, I guess, the process of going public and, and the IPO, uh, we'll just take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. So, Kate, it was 20 years between founding uh, Adore and then going public, uh, which is a long time compared to some of your uh, tech and e-commerce peers. Uh, you know, where Bryce and I were, you know, doing this podcast, we're seeing companies a year or two into their lives um, becoming public companies. So, I guess the first question is, um, why did you decide to stay private for such a long time? Um, look. <laughs> It's funny. I mean, maybe, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess, you know, we're, we're actually, we're not an overnight success and we've, we've grown sustainably and, and profitably over 20 years. And I guess the way that I thought about going public was, you know, this is such an important step in building something enduring and actually capturing what are all of the things that have continued to make this company great for the last 20 years and how can we make sure that, you know, that we protect and nourish those things so that we continue to grow for another 20 years. I guess I, I, I guess I didn't think so much about it as being sort of a decision to, to stay private it is more making sure that the company was where it needed to be at, you know, at a particular time. And this company was actually bootstrapped for, you know, for most of its life. We didn't raise um, any capital capital at all for, you know, the first 14 years, unless you count that first yeah. <laughs> $12,000 loan, which probably, probably most people don't count that. So I, I don't know. I mean, I guess everybody has different approaches to me. If I'm going to build something, I want it to be something good. Um, and it's, I think it's really important to build the foundations first, right? And you, you don't do things until, until you're good and ready. So 2020 was obviously a pretty chaotic year um, with COVID and, and a lot going on in markets. Was the decision to IPO made pre-2020 and this was your target year? If so, why why 2020? And when COVID hit, did you kind of reassess and go, uh-oh, do we need to push this? <laughs> oh, 
Oh, look, this 2020 was chaotic on many, many levels. Um, yeah, no, look, we'd, we'd been we'd been thinking about it for a while and that was kind of the plan that we'd made with, um, with Quadrant, who we partnered with in 2019, and that, that was that was what we wanted to build towards and we'd kind of we kind of sketched up a roadmap in terms of what the company needed to look like to be ready, you know, how like we needed to sort of get our um, full executive leadership team in place and, uh, you know, we'd, we'd kind of recently completed a big warehouse upgrade and we needed to bed that down and then, you know, and then we had some um, some kind of uh, milestones in terms of, okay, well, how many, you know, active customers did we want to have and what, you know, what sort of size in terms of, um, you know, in terms of revenue and, and all of that kind of thing for it to kind of make sense as a, as a listed entity. And then COVID hit and just, we just, I mean, completely stopped thinking about it because it was just, you just had to knuckle down and go into crisis mode, which, you know, if you've been a bootstrap business for 20 years, you're really quite well suited to crisis mode. So <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, we're doing this again. Very good. And and it was really, it was just knuckling down and going, okay, how can we make sure that we keep our staff safe and keep our customers happy? And that was really all we thought about for the first few months. And then I guess, um, you know, we'd, we'd experienced just this, this huge influx of new customers discovering the platform and, you know, and continuing to repurchase and the, the sales trajectory was was amazing. And then we kind of got to, you know, sort of midway through the year and went, oh, actually, you know, suddenly suddenly the size of the business is where we projected it to be in 18 months' time and we did, it had just fast-forwarded us. And, and all of a sudden we looked and just went, oh, well, if we're going to go, we're actually where we plan to be now um and can we cope with the idea of doing an ipo in lockdown and in the end i decided well it's not like we're doing you know going anywhere yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, so why not it was it was more okay we we'd gotten ourselves to where we felt that we needed to be to be able to take that step and then you know the window was open and it hadn't been for a while and and uh, we thought, well, you know, if I've learned anything in the last 20 years, sometimes you've, you've got to take your moments when they come. So as part of the IPO, Adore raised $270 million. Um, what, what does the company plan to do with that money? Um, so it was part primary and part secondary. But as, as far as the primary, um, it was really giving us the flexibility that we need to be able to, I mean, the business has always been profitable so we can execute on, you know, on our organic growth plans with, um, you know, through cash flow, And so, so we didn't necessarily, you know, need to, to be able to fund the growth, but it's more about just having a bit of flex on the balance sheet and to be able to take any, you know, additional growth opportunities that might come up as things sometimes do. So let's turn to people and culture, Kate, because, you know, over the last four or five years of doing this podcast, we have spoken to many, many fund managers and investors and experts in the field, and they all sort of point towards management and understanding what drives you and how you react in crises as sort of the, one of the key uh, indicators as to whether or not a company is going to be successful or not. So for a retail investor, though, it's actually really hard to get that information and hear it right from, you know, the mouth of, of a CEO or executive director. So We'd love to, to speak to you about how you think about leadership and maybe we'll start with your leadership philosophy as um, executive director and, and co-founder. And um, Have you developed one? How do you sort of think about you as a leader? 
Yeah, so what, what I really think about is is values first. Um, so as we were as we were growing, um, we we realised kind of early on in that scaling when you're all of a sudden bringing lots of new people into the company that you have to have you have to have guiding principles in terms of um, making sure that you hire the right people and that you continue to keep all of the things that are that are good and that work well about the company and that you know all of the existing people enjoy. And so uh, we went through a process of with all the team at the time, and this is going back, I don't know, 12, 13 years of setting out what our values were as a company. And these are, these are very much living values. So what we didn't want was to do that thing where you, you know, managers put together some kind of, you know, list of things and it, you know, gets put in a frame on a wall somewhere and then nobody ever talks about it again. Like, this is, what is the point of that? No, it, it, so it's very much around a set of kind of decision-making principles that our team can use every day. Um, so one of them, for instance, is doing the right thing, um, which sounds uh, flip and, and everyone's like, oh, yes, well, of course you do the right thing. But um, the way that we interpret that is that we have to do the right thing by our customers, we have to do the right thing by each other as a team, and we have to do the right thing by our suppliers as well. And sometimes, sometimes that's painful. Um, and you, but you have to, you know, values absolutely must come first, even when it's difficult, even when it's embarrassing. You know, if you have to, uh, you know, admit to a supplier that you know you, you've made a mistake, or you know, you've um, you have you realise that you've let customers down in a particular way. Um, you have to put those values first and you can't ever compromise on them. Um, and that goes for when you're hiring people, um, when you're measuring performance, um, when you're looking at, you know, all the decisions that you have to make, because sometimes, sometimes, you, you know, there's, there might be a, a path of action that you think, oh, well, that's probably the easiest thing to do. But if it doesn't, align with the values that you set for yourself as a leader and for yourself as a company, you absolutely cannot compromise on that ever. Um, and that's been such a useful thing as we've scaled um, and we have a team of, well, over 200 now. Um, and I think our culture is as strong as ever, but because, only because we all, can, we all continue to live the values on a day-to-day -day basis. So, Kate, speaking of leadership, one one thing that, I mean, to add to everything else that you had to do in 2020, um, huh. you, you also uh, transitioned uh, to a new CEO. Um, Tanil O'Shaughnessy uh, took over Adore as CEO in uh, late August this year, so right before the IPO. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what you were looking for in um, in a new leader um, and I guess what the, the process was to try and find a new CEO during COVID? Well, actually, we'd started looking for a new CEO um, like in September of last year. It was just that it took us a long time to, to find the right one. And then, of course, um, you know, she had her notice period, so we actually hired her earlier this year. So it was like in March or something, I think. And then, yes, yeah, so obviously everything changed quite dramatically in the meantime. But for us, you know, or for me, what I always wanted and, and had been, you know, and we've been planning for a number of years to bring on somebody who could help to really guide a door and to, to scale, you know, 
its culture and also obviously, you know, and obviously the business itself, you know, for that kind of next stage of growth. And we and I think one of the things that I've learned is, is when you bring the right people in and really amazing people with the right kind of experience sets and the right um, values orientation is that, you know, the impact that it has on the business is extraordinary. So we'd already seen that. And so it was more about, okay, we're going to need to find a rock star. And we looked and we looked and we thought, you know, it's probably not going to be somebody from retail because I don't want anybody caught up in old ways of thinking. And it's definitely not going to be someone from beauty because again, um, you know, there's, there's assumptions that you, that you kind of develop and that you probably don't see anymore when you've been in an industry for a long time. So we wanted someone that had that experience of scaling fast growth businesses and innovative and agile businesses, but that most importantly was aligned with our values. And um, Tennille is just, it's just absolutely amazing. So I'm just uh, every, you know, as the, as the months go on, I'm more and more thrilled with our decisions. So yeah, she's incredible. So speaking of um, sort of fast scaling over the next uh, period, Let's turn to the future and what sort of the next 12 months hold for Adore, but um, particularly if there was sort of one thing that you wanted to focus on over the next 12 months, um, you know, we speak in business about prioritizing and um, getting the right things done first, what would you be choosing or focusing on um, as your number one priority? Sure. So, um, look, I mean, first and foremost, we think we just have an absolutely massive opportunity to continue to grow and scale the core business. Um, and and so that's really about, you know, how do we um, continue to introduce more and more customers to the Adore platform? Because we know that when we do that, we're building these sticky and returning cohorts that, um, you know, continue to come back to the platform for years and years and years afterwards and actually become more valuable the longer that they stay. And so there's obviously there's obviously a pretty you know pretty sizable opportunity there, and yeah to to continue I think I think we have a particular opportunity to build brand awareness, um, and we started doing that a little during COVID. I think if you look at the you know the twenty year history of Adora as being sort of a self funded and bootstrapped business, we've never been able to invest as much in brand building um, as we would have liked because, of course, you, you know, you have to focus always only on the things that are, you know, directly measurable and immediate. Um, but we know that that's kind of left a gap in our brand awareness between ourselves and, say, you know, the department store competitors, which obviously everybody knows. Um, and so, so we know that when customers discover us, they absolutely love us and they stay for years, but there's still a lot of customers out there who haven't discovered us yet. So we have, we have a very big opportunity there. There's lots more that we want to do as well around continuing to, to build loyalty in our existing customers as well. Cause obviously we recognize that, you know, if you can move the needle, um, even just a small amount, then that has a huge multiplier effect across the business. So we've just uh, sort of soft launched our mobile app, um, which is very much designed around um, you know, kind of an engagement and content-led experience to support returning customers um, and support that discovery piece, as well as just, you know, being convenient way of reordering, which of course, you know, is, is sort of table stakes. Um, and then also we have a loyalty program rolling out in uh, first half of next year, which we've done a lot of sort of individual 
pieces of work around around loyalty and, and data and all of that sort of thing, but really tying that together for customers and, and you know, building a bit of a community around that too. Um, we have, and then, oh, this is this isn't just one thing that we're focusing on at all. Is it? So, <laughs> all rolls up into one. I have to say, I have to say, it's typical Adore style, though. Like, if we're not going a million miles an hour, we'd probably get bored. So, <laughs> um, and then and then we have we're developing some um, some private labels as well. Um, so we have a we have a few projects underway there. Obviously, we have a huge amount of you know of data and insight from our existing customer base that we're using to develop some brands to um, to sit nicely in some gaps alongside our third-party brands. So we're pretty excited about that. That's That's been my baby, actually. So I'm I'm having great fun at the moment. There's uh, tubs and samples all over my desk. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kate, uh, over the 20 years, um, you know, bootstrapping this, uh, this business from a startup to what it is today, you've constantly been uh, dealing with risk and managing risk. You know, you made an early bet on e-commerce and then you worked to disrupt some of the bigger department store players. If you think about Adora as a business now and the risks it's facing, what would you say uh, is the biggest risk for Adora's business right now? Oh, look, I mean, you know, I think I think any business with a digital presence has to take cybersecurity extremely seriously. And we absolutely, we absolutely do. And I, you know, that's that's always front of mind for us. That's um, probably my my biggest my biggest fear. I mean, I think, I mean, there's there's competitors, obviously, and and certainly everybody. We probably poked a bear somewhat with our IPO because perhaps there were some who didn't realise quite how big we'd gotten, and and I'm sure that will continue to. You know, it's always been it's always been a competitive and you know and aggressively competitive space and that's you know i guess we we kind of used to that and i think we would we would continue to back ourselves in that respect and then i think i mean it's you know operationally the challenges of scaling are you know can be can be difficult sometimes and trying to you know get all of the different pieces to work together seamlessly but i mean we you know obviously we continue to hire some pretty amazing people to make sure that we're always kind of laying the track down ahead of us um, before this <laughs> before the, the adore steam train comes comes rolling along. So um, again, I think we've gotten pretty good at that for the last for the last twenty years. But you can never you can never get complacent, right? Mm. So Kate, firstly, a massive thank you for your time this morning. Um, very much appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, before we we close out, though, one more question. And if you were to think about uh, Adore in ten years' time, um, with all the disruption that's going to continue to come and and uh, all the plans that you want to put in place, what does success look like for you? Um. I'd say world domination. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> I mean, why not, right? Like, exactly. that's, you know, that's 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 where we've all, where you've always got to be going for. I think. I mean, look, I, I think you we will see, you know, the, the impact of e-commerce to continue to scale. And if you look at, you know, where China is now, they were they had the same penetration levels as Australia six years ago. So I think, all right, well, you know. 10 years time that's that gives us a, a good amount of time to um to catch up there yeah look i i really want to see adore as just fundamentally 
making a change in the way women get to interact with this with this category and and what we really want for all you know for all of the the people buying beauty and it's you know it's what is an 11 billion dollar industry in australia right now you we want to see everybody shopping near doorway um and and feeling confident to say okay hey if, if you want a you know 10 step korean skincare routine we can absolutely help you with that if all you want to do is just chuck a bit of mascara on in the morning that's also perfectly okay and we'd love you to feel great about that too so yeah i, th- I think bringing that that sense of just you know confidence and and freedom to you know to all of the beauty shoppers um not just in australia but you know in in other markets too yeah nice i hear that korean skincare routine is actually top class though so um <laughs> looking well, forward look i mean we can chat afterwards but, um... <laughs> no no but look kate as i said um very much appreciate you coming on the show you know giving our audience the opportunity here directly from the co-founder of, of some of the companies that they're able to directly invest in themselves is a, a pretty good um opportunity and, and definitely give them a lot of value so um thank you we're looking forward to seeing how a door plays out not only on the markets but uh in in its business plans as well so um appreciate your time oh my absolute pleasure thanks for listening to equity mates investing podcast a production of equity mates media please remember that everything you hear in equity mates investing podcast is general advice only the content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives specific financial circumstances or goals the host of equity mates investing podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Selling a little? Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.